Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another wonderful hour together uh, of Once and Future Grinnell. That was the American Academy of Music uh, playing Henry Purcell's trumpet tune from King Arthur, Act 5. And I will indeed explain uh, that piece of music as we spend our time together. I'm smiling broadly, in case you can't tell, because this was indeed a wonderful um, theme song that was contributed to me by one of our listeners. And so I'm very, very grateful uh, to that individual for providing this wonderful music. In fact, I am looking for theme songs about strategic planning, theme songs about the once and future Grinnell, um, and this marvelous, marvelous one was just absolutely perfect. So I'm thrilled to open tonight's show uh, with exactly that marvelous, rousing piece of music. So my name is Ann Harris. I have the honor of serving as the president of Grinnell College. And every Wednesday evening for spring term two, I will be here from 6 to 7 p.m. to discuss strategic planning um, under the title Once and Future Grinnell. And what I'll be doing this evening is spending, uh, as, I, as I always do, a good bit of time at the beginning kind of introducing the idea of strategic planning. Uh, so for those of you who are tuning in from past weeks, you'll be familiar with this. I always try to add a little something new in this kind of 15 minutes of introduction. Um, then I'll be delving into our topic for today, which is educational excellence and continuity. And I'm very excited to tell you that I'll be joined by the Dean of the College, um, Elaine Marslove, uh, 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 professor of uh, chemistry as well. Um, that'll come around 6.30 and then we'll be talking through some of the topics together uh, and then we'll wrap up our hour. As every week, um, I'm doing this so as to exchange ideas and to start to really articulate um, what we're trying to do with strategic planning at the college. And I'm keen to know what you think. So as with um, every week, I would invite you to write your thoughts to president at grinnell.edu. Thoughts, ideas, um, things that you'd want me to be thinking about, um, things that you're hopeful uh, will, will be articulated in our process um, that should appear in our thinking, or you know what? Responses to what you're hearing this evening. That would also be very, very welcome. So the continuity of this show, of course, we're live on Wednesday evenings, um, but you can always find us um, in the All Things Grinnell podcast. And I think that's a really nice continuity. Um, and that's at allthingsgrinnell.podbean.com. Um, and of course, you can also just look it up um, via Google. But I like that we have this kind of archive that we're building together of uh, strategic planning ideas. This, I, this archive of conversations, which I think are at the heart of our mission and purpose, as well as at the heart of strategic planning, um, as well as really an articulation of ideas. Because um, the way that we want to build this institution together and build on the strengths of this institution is precisely through a set of shared ideas. So this podcast exists, um, this radio show, this podcast exists because of an outreach that I'm eager to make to all of our students, to our alumni, to our parents, to really this wonderful broad category we can call friends of the college. And so um, being able to come together again once a week to talk, it's just, it's just absolutely marvelous um, to me. So let's start with the title. Let's start with the title, Once and Future Grinnell. Um, this is where I can tie it to the music that we were listening to uh, earlier. And that is um, that it does indeed come from a book title called The Once and Future King, which is about King Arthur. More specifically, it's about King Arthur as a young boy. And my own academic training was in medieval art history. Uh, king Arthur is this legendary king of the Middle Ages. Um, legendary for, oh my goodness, many things, um, but bringing together a unifier. He was legendary for being a unifier. Also legendary for the way that he organized his nights at a round table. And I'm always fascinated to see how King Arthur is portrayed in modern film as a kind of proto-democratic king or a benevolent despot in any, in any case. Um, he's also quite famous for um, his wife Guinevere having a, a lifelong love affair with his knight 
Lancelot, but that would really be the topic of another podcast entirely. So uh, we're going to focus on this idea of the once and future Grinnell based on, again, this, this novel from the 1950s by T.E. White called Once and Future King, which itself was based on a medieval uh, literature called La Morte d'Arthur by um, Sir Mallory from the 15th century, which sought to give a kind of biography, um, I guess we would call it that in the modern age, a kind of biography of King Arthur, but more specifically kind of delving deeply into transformative moments of his life. And you'll be happy to learn his education was one of those transformative moments. So The Once and Future King is the book about um, King Arthur that's based on his education under the tutelage of the wizard Merlin. Um, what happens when Merlin comes into King Arthur's life is that, or he actually, he doesn't know that he's a king at the time. He's in fact, this very impoverished young boy. Um, but when he comes to know himself, he comes to know his power and he comes to know himself through his education. And of course, that's a very, very pertinent thing for us to think about as we consider the mission of our beloved college, as we consider the place of higher education in democracy, um, that, that knowledge is about coming into selfhood, um, deepening selfhood, deepening ambition and so forth. So it's very, very pertinent and very, very apt for us, I would say. The great thing, of course, about um, Arthur's realization of himself is the realization of his power. And he realizes that most dramatically by pulling a sword out of a stone that had been stuck in that stone uh, for millennia um, with no chance of moving until this young man comes along and, and pulls it out and thereby demonstrates himself to be the one true king of all Britain and then proceeds to unify um, uh, unify the kingdom and of course bring the Knights of the Round Table together. So um, for those of you, if this starts to sound familiar, Disney did indeed make a film of this. It's called The Sword in the Stone and it's very much about the young boy Arthur and the wizard Merlin. As I've said before, I also enjoy this particular resonance of the title um, because it allows me to just revel with you for a bit about the magic of learning, the magic of teaching. Um, I'm going to say the wizardry of the Grinnell faculty, uh, not just for the excellence that they sustained throughout a pandemic, but for all that they do um, and have done for, for 175 years. So um, with the title then firmly in our minds and firmly in our shared understanding, I do want to turn to why one would even think of strategic planning um, as part of what it means to, to be a college community, um, as part of what it means to be a new president. And I am in my first year as president of Grinnell, and that's part of the wonderful opportunity um, that a new president has is to build on the strengths of the institution, to do honor to what came before her, um, and to think about the future. Uh, and, and I would say this, to think about the possible futures of the college, both for what we know and what we don't know. So just to get into kind of what strategic planning even is, um, it's become something that's quite current in higher education because what was an arguably um, a, a very steady institution, if you think from roughly the early 19th century to the mid 20th century, has really taken off in some very powerful ways and has become a much more um, unpredictable, some would even say volatile landscape. So, you know, in the 1950s, I point to that because that was really the, the tremendous growth of colleges and universities. The, the GI Bill um, really also changed the face of education. A lot more first-generation students um, entered academic ranks. My father uh, was one of them, having served in World War II in the Navy. Um, and, and really, you start to, to have this phenomenal growth of higher education. And then ever since the 2008-2009 um, economic crisis, you have a kind of, it's almost as though higher education has been living in this kind of crisis mode or 
not quite knowing what's going to happen next. Um, and for a while there were, you know, MOOCs, all these, these massive online courses that were going to do away um, with academe. And then there was changing curricula um, that was also going to change everything. And of course, we have changing demographics. We have higher and lower birth rates. We have a different face of the United States. Different students are coming to college, different, different, um, uh, students from different demographic backgrounds. Um, we have a great increase of um, uh, Latinx students coming to college, for example. So these are just some of the examples of the things that have changed. And so, you know, I, the word crisis is really economic. The word change is a whole set of opportunities. And so I would say that for the past 10, 20 years or so, strategic planning really becomes part of what it means to be a college community, certainly one of the expectations and, and you know, really joys um, of being a new president, which is to imagine a possible future for the college. Um, it is seldom the same because humans are seldom the same. And so to start to think, not even in a predictive way, but, you know, oh, I think this will happen, and so we need to prepare for that. Of course, we're going to try to do those things. There's some things we know. We know, uh, we know demographics. We know birth rates. But there's some things we don't know. Um, you know, people talk about the future of work, the presence of artificial intelligence. What are we, in fact, learning for the world that we're about to shape? What are we, in fact, teaching our graduates who will go out and shape that world? And so these are, to me, the, the best kinds of questions that we can ask. And this is why, to me, strategic planning really is a kind of seminar. Um, and I think last week I talked about the etymology of the word seminar, and it's, it's a seed garden, right? It's, that's where we get the word seminal um, as well, which is related to the word seed. And seminary, which is where young shoots, meaning young, young men and women, um, but young men originally, um, would grow to grow up. Um, and so the word seminar is really important for me when we start thinking about strategic planning. So one of the strange, um, but let's take advantage of it, silver linings of the pandemic has been that instead of leaping directly into projects and initiatives and uh, meetings and committees, we have really been prompted, I would say not forced, but prompted to take a different kind of pace to our strategic planning. And so really using the spring for conceptual work um, and spending time, much more time maybe than one normally would during a strategic planning process, thinking through ideas, gathering ideas, articulating ideas. Um, and, and this to me sets up a a really nice groundwork that again usually doesn't happen in strategic planning. So I would say, you know, the dynamic that I see, the potential that I see is to to work together this spring on two aspects of strategic planning. One is shared information. Um, and I've got a lot to tell you about Grinnell College and, and the kind of position that it's in. Um, that shared information then building onto shared understanding and that shared understanding building into shared ambition. And the ambition, of course, is when we're putting all these ideas into actions, uh, which is a, a fervent practice at Grinnell College, and we're moving them forward, we're building on them um, uh, productively. So how we're doing it specifically here is a specific kind, of, uh, specifically at Grinnell, is a particular kind of strategic planning called collective impact planning. Collective impact planning comes from the world of nonprofit, um, which is, of course, where, where we are. And it, it heralds and celebrates the practice of nonprofits of working in coalition. So a nonprofit will seek to move a particular issue, not just by itself, but by building coalitions with community organizations, sometimes with government organizations, sometimes with granting organizations, all sorts of coalitions are built. But the idea is that even though you've got people coming from many disparate places, they're all working together towards that same ambition. Um, and the ambition, in the most broad way that I can put it, of course, is to deepen the mission and purpose of Grinnell College, which is to educate for the common good. Um, and to do so within a framework of social responsibility and excellence. And so tonight, it's really wonderful to focus on the strategic principle of educational excellence and continuity. 
As you know, uh, perhaps, or I'm happy to introduce them again, but there are five of these strategic principles, and this is what will carry us through to the end of spring term two. We spent the past two weeks talking about community, which is how we value each other and our shared goals. Wonderful conversations with terrific guests. I was very, very grateful um, for the time that we spent articulating community, talking about governance and other aspects of what makes an intentional community like ours. We're gonna spend the next two weeks talking about educational excellence and continuity, um, which I've sub subtitled, if you will, how we create and share knowledge. A third strategic principle is diversity, equity, and inclusion, how shared understanding of identities in context sustains thriving. A fourth is health and well-being, and I can't wait to explore those issues um, because those are those don't usually wind up in strategic planning, but I've put them there. Um, want to hold us accountable to that part of our mission, how we care for ourselves and for each other. And then the last one will be financial sustainability, how we understand and steward our resources. So let's dive into educational excellence and continuity, how we create and share knowledge. And I will say here that um, the we in that sentence is very expansive. It is the we of faculty, of course, who create and share knowledge, of staff who come into the institution um, with, with all sorts of advanced degrees and specialized training and also create and share knowledge, um, and our students, our students whose experience is a source of knowledge. I think that's a very key understanding for, for how I think about knowledge. Um, the way that it's connected to experience as well as expertise um, and then we constantly and consistently learn from our alumni as well um, as the friends of the college those who come and who are in our who are in our midst and who are with us um, but i want to underscore of course we don't just create knowledge at grinnell we also share it and that's a really important dynamic of our institution um, which is to me the way that grinnell college leads by um, sharing knowledge, whether that's uh, through the generosity of assessment or, um, or, or of, of other institutions or programs, you know, really shaping other parts of higher ed, or of course, whether it's at conferences, in publications, um, in all these other realms where you're going to find Grinnell faculty um, and staff making contributions, excuse me, <clears throat> and staff making contributions to knowledge, and then our students who also publish, who are also out um, at conferences and so forth. So this idea that the knowledge we create, we share, we move out into the world. That's why I love the word education. It comes from the Latin um, two parts, e, which is out of, and ducere, which is to lead. So education meaning to lead out of, to bring forth, to move forward. Um, and at its most literal, right, to, to lead out of not knowing, to lead out of ignorance. Some would say to, leave out of, to lead out of darkness. Um, but the idea is that we're moving forward, we're creating knowledge, and we're moving it into some other kind of space. So I have several areas that I want to talk to you about here um, before we are joined by Dean Marsloff um, at, in about 10 minutes. It goes quickly. Um, and that is uh, talking to you about teaching and pedagogy as well as curriculum and interdisciplinarity. Um, and then we'll talk a little bit about research and scholarship as well as Grinnell as a site of inquiry and what I've called the loving labor of the liberal arts. Um, so we'll see if we can cover all of that um, as uh, Dean Marsleff gets ready to join us. So where I want us to think, and I, I guess I want us to think about this on this wonderful cusp where we are right now between being an institution in a pandemic and starting to look to the horizon line of a post-pandemic um, college. Now, it's a horizon line, it's not a fixed point. Uh, it really depends on the day, depends on the vaccinations and so on and so forth. Very happy that we had a vaccination clinic today um, after many, many months of trying, and I know everyone is trying. Um, but moving forward towards that horizon line of a post-pandemic college, what that looks like and what we treasure in that kind of new tomorrow. So that's a very immediate possible future. But what I want to do in that is to prize the classroom as the dynamic center of our enterprise. Um, and that very specific space that I know we have all missed terribly, and that is very much transformed um, by different physical behaviors that come out of the pandemic. Um, but also, I think, in some ways, examined anew as a 
as a space that we just we just can't look at it the same way after a pandemic. Um, meaning, we've been away from it, and you know when you're away from something, you're going to look at it differently. So, what is the classroom? What happens in there? What kind of what what does it mean to create knowledge by being together in a classroom that is distinct from being together on a screen? And I'm not necessarily going to say one is automatically better than the other. We're having good academic results as a result of our remote learning. But I can tell you where the yearning is and I can tell you where the curiosity is. And that is for that moment when we're back in the classroom again, all of us together. What happens when people decide to come together in a physical space and to learn together, to learn with and from each other? That is something that I think we're going to be paying even closer attention to um, in our post-pandemic way. And I think we'll think about all of our spaces, not just the way that we occupy them, but the way that we relate to each other in them. And so this is, of course, the next term, which is pedagogy, right? Um, teaching is, is the act. Pedagogy is the approach. What, how, what is going to be a post-pandemic pedagogy? Will there be Will there be this need to talk about personal experience? Will there be this eagerness to have experience be a kind of expertise? Um, we are all new students of and in the pandemic. How is that gonna shape our classroom when we return? And I'm really looking forward to um, thinking about Grinnell College claiming its place once again in that post-pandemic world, claiming um, and, and rethinking maybe in some ways, you know, the classroom and the place of experience in the classroom. Certainly pedagogy that has always involved engagement and always involved students. Probably the, you know, the biggest thing is the Socratic method in which the faculty member asks a question and the students respond and then dialogue ensues and so forth. There's so many different ways to, and so that's an old one, right? If we go to Socrates, but what are the ways that we will be thinking into the future of our classrooms. And of course, there's technology. That's one thing, right? We might have more alumni visiting now that we're all used to uh, virtual connections. Um, what is the future of our pedagogy in terms of prizing experience, in terms of experience becoming a part of expertise, or even in terms of, you know what I think of? Even in terms of knowledge that becomes viewed differently through a post-pandemic lens. There may be things that, oh, well, look, that was published in 2010. You know, that was before the pandemic. They didn't know about the public health crisis that we would be enduring. Um, they didn't know, you know, about the ways that um, different public health policies turned out to, 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 to make a difference in people's lives and in, in the economy and so on and so forth. So that's absolutely key. I think we'll also be thinking about those other spaces of learning at the college, many, many other spaces of learning, um, including faculty, faculty exchanges between each other um, among students. I hope you know this, but advising is considered a part of teaching at Grinnell. So where at most institutions, advising is considered service, at the college it's considered part of teaching. That's of course connected to the individualized curriculum uh, because there are no requirements except for the tutorial uh, at this point at Grinnell College. Uh, that's a first year class. And so faculty and students work together to chart out an individualized curriculum through the institution. So to think about those spaces of learning that are outside the classroom, um, spaces of exchange between faculty and students as they're, as they're advising them, mentoring them, um, and then all those other spaces. You know, we'll, we'll talk a lot more about residential life when we talk about health and well-being, uh, but that's an enormous learning space as well at the college. So I, I'm just very eager to see what happens and how we use the opportunity, the provocation of the pandemic to think into the future of our classrooms. Will they be more permeable to alumni presence, to people coming in, um, you know, again, through through virtual means? Is there, does technology create a permeability to our classrooms that maybe wasn't there before? I'll also, of course, be tracking with you and thinking with you and the faculty, um, specifically here when it comes to curriculum and interdisciplinarity. So this is a, a perfect segue from our spaces um, and how our spaces themselves shape our pedagogy and our curriculum and this interdisciplinarity. And what I'm referring to there is the, is the architectural innovation of the college, which featured which already had featured um, 
a highly interdisciplinary science complex, uh, the Noyce Science Building, which has multiple lab and other sciences uh, all inhabiting the same space, now sits across an open plaza called Kington Plaza, uh, after my predecessor, Reynard, President Reynard Kington, uh, sits across this plaza from the HSSC, the Humanities and Social Studies Building, which is an architectural complex built around the concept of neighborhoods. And so the idea of neighborhoods, uh, meaning that departments are next to each other, where before you'd have, oh, that's the philosophy building, um, or that's the, the building where you've got English and history, you know, just two departments. Now you've got all the humanities and social science departments that are interconnected. Now the performing arts, um, which, which need a different kind of space and different kind of equipment, are still in, in Bucksbaum, but that's not too far on our small campus. Um, and so they are neighbors in another kind of way there too. But this idea, right, that an economics student and faculty member is going to enrich and inform and be enriched and be informed by exchanges with a gender, women, and sexuality um, studies professor and student. Those kinds of exchanges, those moments in the hallways, I think is something that we really, really want to um, think about, that we really want to pursue. And there's you know, I, I, I also associate a certain number of books with each of these um, strategic principles. And there's one that I really like entitled Creating Wicked Students, Designing Courses for a Complex World. Um, and of course, the, the wicked student is not in the original term of the word wicked. Wicked here just means very, very complicated, right? That's a wicked problem. Well, what do you need for wicked problems? You're gonna need wicked students designing courses for a complex world. And I do think that um, disciplinary boundaries should not only be highly permeable, right? But that the world itself exists within within a lot of permeable boundaries, that the best problem solving occurs in collaboration on diverse teams. And so this principle of interdisciplinarity um, has been very, very important for for all that we do. So I am happily, this is actually a, an absolutely perfect moment um, for me to now be, um, to be transitioning to my guest for the evening. Um, and I'm going to make a couple of moves here so that I can introduce her properly. And we'll have um, about a good 15 minutes or so um, to speak together with Dean Elaine Marsleff. And I'm really looking forward to welcoming her. So as I do so, I want to um, transition from this, this point that I've been making about teaching and pedagogy, um, about curriculum and interdisciplinarity. Um, and I was just um, making the, the connection between interdisciplinarity at the college and interdisciplinarity in um, problem solving in the world that we exist in. And so I'm, I'm thrilled that Dean Marzov has joined me at exactly this moment right now because one of the one of the things that I'm so interested in developing, celebrating, um, supporting is the way that um, that our curriculum and our community connects with civic engagement, social responsibility, um, and racial justice, for example. The way that our classroom connects to our community, the way that the research that happens at Grinnell um, has uh, connections with communities, be those academic communities, policy communities, um, lived experience um, of, of many, many people who benefit from the results of the research. So I'll have some uh, questions that are fueled by my own uh, driving curiosity for Dean Marsleff's research herself, but I want to introduce her properly first. Um, she is indeed um, the Vice President for Academic Affairs and the Dean of the College at Grinnell. Um, she's also the Bride McFarland Professor of Science from the Department of Chemistry. And I'm now, uh, you can now hear me, I believe, Dean Marzov. Wonderful, that's terrific. Uh, and I just introduced you, but I was um, muted at the time, so you didn't hear me introduce you. <laughs> I want to be sure that I'm pronouncing uh, the name of your professorship correctly. The Bride McFarland Professor of Science, is that correct? Bride 
Braid, there we go. There we go. Um, and so um, th that lets you, that gives you a quick glimpse um, of the incredible importance of Dean Marzoff um, to the Grinnell community, in the Grinnell community, uh, with many years of teaching and research and mentoring and leadership um, currently as the dean of the college. And so I'm just so thrilled that you, you're able to join me for these 15 minutes or so where we can speak together. Um, and I've been talking about that connection between the classroom in the community between what happens um, in the lab and what may well end up happening um, in policy work that marvelous trajectory from the classroom at Grinnell to the world that our graduates and our faculty and staff shape um, and so I was very eager to hear from you um, the way that you've experienced that dynamic from the the research that happens again maybe on campus to the knowledge you've seen be transferred um, and communicated off of campus and, and some of your own experiences with that, I would love to learn from. Okay, yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to, happy to talk about um, what I've seen there in, in terms of my own experience. And I think here of what it is that we're doing with research um, and what it is that I try to do with research, which is a combination of building new knowledge, um, right, and, and creating creating new, idea, new ideas, new knowledge, um, testing theories and hypotheses, um, and, and furthering, um, in our own small way, uh, the, the, realm of scientific, the realm of scientific knowledge that, that we're able to have. Um, and that's that's one goal of our of our of the work that I do with students when I'm involving them in research, and then other aspects of that are the developmental aspects of um, taking a project, developing it um, as a student in their in your own way, and then moving that into a final product, and and all the skills that go along all the skills that go along with that, um, and as well as the pride of ownership of having a final product. Um, that ultimately is able to be presented um, often at a national meeting, sometimes um, if, if all goes well into a paper in a scientific journal, um, that's the part, and both of those um, start to advance, advance that new knowledge. Um, but also the, the huge amount of development there and how that leverages students into whatever it is that they do next. Um, you know, the, the perhaps in some ways clear path to many folks is to go on a graduate school and continue exactly a very similar sort of trajectory. Um, and, and it clearly, I, I think our experiences well prepare students for that and we, and we hear that from students and, and they go on and they're, they're very successful in, in graduate school. But that's not the only area where it really serves students well to have that independent research, mentored um, independent research activity of, um, mm. of both developing new knowledge and having ownership of that knowledge, but taking that into into the workplace, taking that into um, a nonprofit organization, just taking that into any sort of work that we're going to do, all of those skills and all of those aspects of that research serve, serve students really well. And I, I think that's something that, you know, has been very well articulated by um, former dean of the college, Mike Latham, as well, building on that tradition of research at the institution and really making that a hallmark of the institution. Because I do think about the... Um, I've been talking a lot about classroom spaces and lab spaces, research spaces, kind of really thinking, maybe this is part of that post-pandemic uh, re-entry, but really thinking about how we learn in this communal setting, which is not every educational setting. This is very particular to small liberal arts colleges. And so I think about the action and the agency of research, and I'm very taken by a phrase you use, the pride of ownership. Um, what, when, in your opinion, does that happen for a student or, or for yourself, that moment of this is knowledge I created, or, or I'm just very taken by that phrase with pride of ownership as part of the work. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah I, I think the knowledge of creation um, and that pride can come into play when students are presenting that work to others huh. and, and, and really hits home. Um, in 
in multiple areas that I, I've taught in. So in my chemistry part, um, students will very early on present to their colleagues what it is that they're planning to do, what it is they hope to do, you know, what, what, what is the purpose of the research project. We maybe don't yet have the new, new knowledge yet, but along the way they have just developed a whole additional set of knowledge that their peers don't yet have because it's in a very specific area of research, a very specific area of literature. And there we ask them to present their problem and the significance of that problem to one another. And I also have to remind them, right, one of the things that, that can be terrifying about that is, well, what sort of questions are we going to get? And it's to remember that, you know, no matter how hard the question is, you are now the expert in the room. Um, you know, fine, maybe me, who won't be asking the hard questions in the public presentation, might ask them in my office. Um, you're now the expert in the room. And so, um, and so, so just even in that initial moment of getting of getting started among your peers, and then ultimately as well, being able to take that out, and so many of our students go out to national conferences and regional conferences and show their success and, and countless awards that they win, and mm. people are surprised, like will often comment when they learn that they're undergraduates, that the presentations that they're able to do are rivaling people who are who are who are coming there with lots more experience and wow. and that's just that's just something really really exciting um and, and i see that trajectory as well i teach in the policy studies concentration and our final course there is um, policy studies research it's a required course for the concentration um, students take it after taking the senior seminar for the concentration and in that they develop their own um, policy brief an analysis of a policy problem or a proposal of a policy um, direction and very similar to the way that um, a student might do a map they will develop that develop that work and develop that knowledge and we've always had them participate in public presentations on campus mm -hmm. um, and you know I go back to even the very first time I taught that in 2008 and some of the first students in there went on to continue to work on those same problems and publish in that field um, on their own wow. Um, wow. You know, a few years later and, and just seeing that trajectory and that development and that impact that they're having. And that's now um, you know, in a policy world um, yeah. where it's advancing knowledge in a different way and having impacts in a, in a different way than advancing the scientific knowledge and, and both really important. So, and, and they can they can really uh, see that impact. I mean, as you were speaking, it brought back this memory of um, when and and dear listener, you would not know this, but when Dean Marzoff and I met, which was in two thousand two three, three, three years ago, three years ago, three years ago, three, years ago. three, years, three short years ago, but very long years ago, um, at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory, where we were part of a program review. And there's something in, in what you were saying that reminded me of those moments where the students had to present the research that they'd been engaged in for that semester, but they were specifically told, and I think we were chosen, um, me from the world of art history, you from the world of chemistry, um, they were specifically told that they needed to have the agility to speak to both experts and non-experts. And I think about, I guess what I would call the agility of knowledge and how you know, how when we're thinking about our research, we are trying to get students to, to speak as comfortably to a fellow scientist in the lab as they would be to a legislator uh, who's working on policy. So, you know, our time goes very quickly and we're soon gonna be out of time. So I wanted to be sure to pick up on your policy studies work. Um, and I think it's utterly fascinating that the students write a policy brief because that is, you know, you can go out in the world with that. Um, but you had started to tell me at one point, and I want to pick up on it and delve into it a little further, about a particular um, off-campus experience, I believe it was in Washington, D.C., that you had had around policy studies, and it was with an economist, if I remember correctly, but I, I would just be very... If I remember that correctly, I may remember that incorrectly. Um, but to, to find out, you know, what happens when we have this interdisciplinary approach to knowledge creation, and then we take it, you know, somewhere like the halls of Congress or, or, or you know, policy uh, making hallways um, uh, out in, in this specific instance in Washington, D.C. So, and so I would I'm just eager to learn about that experience. Yeah, absolutely. So when I've done this policy study work, um, 
three or four different times now, uh, Professor Wayne Moyer and I in political oh, science. Oh, political science. Okay. Very close. Yeah. Yes. Oh, the <laughs> I was uh, um, a seminar on um, climate change, science policy, and ethics. And our most recent offering of that course, we were able to incorporate some course embedded travel into that course, um, which was super, which was super exciting to be able to, um, to do and bring into that. And so over fall break, we were take, able to take the class to Washington, D.C. Um, this was supported by, um, at that point, it was the Center for International Studies, which is now the um, IGE, the Institute for Global Education, um, with climate change being so global and D.C. offering so many global opportunities. And, um, and while we were there, we met with a whole variety of different areas that would speak to thinking about climate change. We spent an entire day at the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center um, on the coast of, um, of the Potomac further, about an hour from D.C., learning about um, their, their scientific studies on climate change um, and how they go about studying impacts of climate change scientifically. We met with a variety of um, think tanks and organizations that do a lot of modeling around the policy work of climate change. We were able to meet with um, folks in the Department of Energy and folks in the EPA, um, hmm. and as well as we spent a day at the Pentagon learning as well about how you know the military thinks about the impacts of climate change on, oh, wow. on the work that they on the work that they do, um, and so we're able to just see a whole wide variety of different um, ideas and opinions. We also met with um, actual policymakers, so we were able to meet with. We were fortunate to be able to meet with um, Subinias, who was one of the was, was the United States lead climate negotiator of mm. the Paris, of the Paris <laughs> Agreement, and so just, it was just amazing and. Some of the listeners may recognize that name. Um, her mother was a commencement speaker here, chosen by the student several years ago. So there was a Grinnell connection we were able nice. to use there. And, and we were really assisted by many Grinnell alums in Washington, D.C., who helped us make these connections to all of these organizations and to all of these places and, and got us into places that, that just were amazing to be able to do. We were able to do a couple of different alumni events. We did a, a regular alumni event. We also did a young alumni event because we also thought it was really, really nice. We called in, um, you know, people in the policy world often end up in D.C. and we had um, you know, a collection of students from our former classes who were in Washington, D.C. and we were able to have a dinner with those students and our current students and just to have them think about what sort of opportunities might be might be available to them and so oh. it was was an extra transformative experience for the for the class and and um, you know in terms of we've, we've been talking about research but the the experience of a course embedded travel experience um, yeah. either domestically or globally I think is one of those other really mm -hmm. um, altering experiences that we're able to offer students here at Grinnell and maybe you'll get to explore that further you could bring those into a, a future show Anne. <laughs> I'm telling you I'm those are really really astounding because that, that is of course a, a way of understanding I think both the college and what what learning is is supposed to be connecting to kind of the kind of worlds that it connects to because you know there, there is definitely this um this trajectory of being a student and then moving on and becoming either a, a graduate student or entering um into some kind of of work right away and as was said recently during a town hall dedicated to educational excellence and continuity with faculty and staff there's an and there right to what we're learning and then yes heading into into the workforce as it sometimes gets called but i really value this space that you're talking about where the students are seeing what i would call practitioners right like you've got to have that solid knowledge before you can start to make the policy change and of course we we know policy change and the paris um with the paris accord the paris agreements were in enormously important so we definitely have to say to be continued um, on that particular one and and so I'd have about a minute left with you and I just wanted to ask you a question about when, when you think of Grinnell or your own practice that 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 wonderful phrase that was started to be used really in the mid 20th century about education being a public good 
versus a kind of private commodity. Um, and of course, we are a private college ourselves, but we have that phrase in our mission about the common good. So you have all these, you know, all these kind of phrases uh, working around. But I, I do think it's very different when we think about teaching into the common good or teaching into a public good. And and how and at the same time, you know, we're also sometimes I'm teaching a work of medieval art and not much, you know, that's what I'm really focused on. But I also do think a lot about identity and history and, and culture and all these things. Where is that idea for you of the public good? When you're teaching chemistry or when you're thinking about staffing departments and so forth, how would you articulate the public good of an education? I think we understand the, again, the private benefit, the individual benefit, but what is the public good um, of an education like that, like ours? Right, yeah. And of course, you know, public goods show up in the, as does the tragedy of the commons, very much in discussions of policy and policy analysis. Yeah, so I have to say that, yeah. that, that yeah. that's one direction my mind goes when I think about, um, when I think about that in the, in the policy world. But, yeah. um, but, but thinking about, um, you know, just the transformative value of education in terms of opening up, um, opening up opportunities and, and opening up space and time for exploration, particularly um, for all people. We have a, another unique aspect of our education here, which is that we um, we educate primarily students who are what people call traditional aged, even though that's actually the smallest segment across all of U.S. population. So even though we call it traditionally aged students, um, yeah. it is the smallest segment of enrolled yeah. students across the United States. So we probably need a different language for that, right? But many students <laughs> who are relatively recently um, out of high school and um, and, and so are, are pursuing education um, at there. And I think that the, the combination of, of what that can offer as well as thinking about the um, the reflection time and the time to the time of development and and um, exploration yeah. that we're able to offer in our liberal arts um, area, and, and so that's another aspect of, of course, what we have as you're all aware, right? Yeah. Is that, that that we're doing we're offering this common com, common good or public good within the liberal arts, and what's really important to me mm -hmm. is thinking about access. And, mm -hmm. and access is hugely important, and um, and so I'm, I'm very proud to be in an institution that meets full demonstrated need of of our students. Um, we've now incorporated a known loan initiative into that, um, yeah. and and continuing to really think about providing access to, to students who want this. Um, we still have work to do in that area, and we know that, right, mm -hmm. in terms of um, truly being sure that we're, we're educating people about the access that we're able to provide um, and that they're aware, right, and not just looking at our sticker price and not, right. not even considering Grinnell because um, because it is that private school with a really high sticker price, and so helping students see that we are another way into access of that. Yeah. Of that education. So yeah. I think about as well. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I you know my deep love of the English language has both the words elite and elitist and i think being a small private institution can certainly i mean the the elite as long as there's access to it right we've got this this wonderful company that we create each and every year of a, of a new class of students but i do think um that's a great point that the 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 public good aspect which can readily be applied to public universities i think there's a different narrative that we need to to really um construct and champion for small liberal arts and it has to do with access you're absolutely right about that because that's the i mean what does access do it creates i love how you put that it, it opens up you said um the space and time and it really holds it that way for four years for our students in multiple locales multiple places multiple ways so um yes and, and you're absolutely right i do want to reiterate you know over 50 percent of the higher education marketplace now is is community colleges which are not necessarily traditional <laughs> age students um and and liberal arts colleges are two percent uh of that of that higher education landscape so we're really in an unusual place but we but we work to um to hold it open so i've actually kept you longer than our allotted time so if you're um i wish you a, a marvelous evening and i really really thank you for being a guest on once in future grinnell Thank you. It was a pleasure <laughs> to be here. Have a nice evening, everybody. You take good care. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.
So I will then um, finish up with you, dear, wonderful, here we go, uh, wonderful listeners. And we only have 10 minutes left um, before our time is up. And so um, what I'll be doing as we speak is, here we go, here we go, um, is really finishing up the, oh my goodness, yeah, we'll have very little time for, but the two last parts of what we want to be talking about together. And um, one of them is Grinnell College as a site of inquiry, and the other is this idea of the loving labor of the liberal arts. And I think when you hear um, Dean Marsloff's dedication and her profound knowledge of her students' experience, um, you really do see that um, commitment. Uh, lived so, so very fully um, by her. So Grinnell College is a site of inquiry. Here is where I want to spend a little bit of time really thinking about um, our location. I, I mean that both geographically, but also as a destination. So one of the greater t-shirts that you'll find at the Grinnell College bookstore downtown in Grinnell um, is Grinnell College, colon, conveniently located between New York and LA. And that's a pretty witty and wonderful uh, statement about the fact that we're located in Grinnell, Iowa. But of course, that um, location was very intentional in the 19th century, as was the location of just about every small liberal arts college. Um, there are some exceptions where you find them in cities. But I want us to think for just a few minutes about what on earth it meant in the 19th century to purposefully learn and live away from society, purposefully be far from the matting crowd, purposefully be away from Sin City, you know, all these other ways of conceptualizing what was happening when all these different individuals were creating small liberal arts colleges in the in the geographical landscape of the United States. And please, dear listener, I need to reiterate that, of course, the... Um, the liberal arts college model is very, very unusual in the rest of the world. Very unusual. The idea that you would live and learn in the same place is really all, it's not unique to the United States, but it's very, very, very rare in other parts of the world. Now there's some marvelous liberal arts colleges coming together in other places um, around the globe, but it's really an American model. And one could argue that it's based on a seminary, in other words, where the monks would learn and, and live together. Um, but there's something else that was going on, you know, in the, in the 19th century, because they weren't necessarily seminary. So yes, it could be the kind of I don't, a lot of them, you know, kind of Protestant ethic of, of again, being far from from the matting crowd. But it is prizing this act of being an intentional society and a learning society at that. Um, as I've mentioned in other, in other shows, this, the intensity of that model is really something to, to be aware of, um, both in terms of the joy of that intensity, we feel our impact on each other very profoundly here, and also the fatigue of that intensity, right? Which I think actually prepares you well um, for any work that you'll do in any community moving forward, which is what happens when you're, you are a society unto itself, people who are looking to each other and counting on, on each other. So I think the, the Grinnell College as a site of inquiry idea really comes to, yes, prize place and be very aware, as Dean Marzoff just made us aware, of moving between our location here, where we're intentionally living and learning in community, into other spaces where knowledge transforms lives. And so this incredible example that she gave of going to Washington, D.C. to follow policy work and policy practicants um, for climate change with a political science professor and a, and a whole group of students, um, or graduate schools, or uh, different aspects of, of the workplace. I think that sense of understanding that, yes, I'm at Grinnell and and I'll be going to New York or Accra in the beautiful country of Ghana or you know all these other different locales to be really conscious of place and what happens when you're, you're at Grinnell and you're learning in a particular way and what you're taking about that collaborative learning into other spaces. 
So then with very little time left, I do want to land on this last phrase, the loving labor of the liberal arts. This is a, a way that, you know, on those days when I'm, when I have to, you know, just wake up and say, okay, once more, you know, once more into our mission, what is our mission? What's going to sustain me in this work? Because we've all chosen when we enter um, an educational excellence um, uh, site like Grinnell College, um, it's going to take a lot to sustain that educational excellence. And where we resource ourselves, where we get the energy to do it, where does that come from? And so this phrase, the loving labor of the liberal arts, seeks to both acknowledge the labor of liberal arts teaching. There are no graduate students. There are no, um, you know, te- I mean, there are there are teaching assistants, but not the the way that you have in graduate schools where they'll do um, a whole bunch of the teaching and grading and so forth. Instead, it's this very direct, interactive approach. And so, what it takes is that commitment to faculty, staff, and students to each other as members of many communities that bring to the work at hand, bring that commitment to the work at hand and bring that commitment to each other. Um, When we were doing the town hall, this particular phrase, the loving labor of the liberal arts, was transformed into the shared labor of the liberal arts. And I think there it was seeking to signal the faculty, staff and student partnerships of liberal arts colleges. You know, and at some point, I'm sitting here as I think about educational excellence and continuity, um, it is worth, of course, uh, of course, exploring that term liberal arts. Um, guess what? It comes from the Middle Ages. It's the liberal arts in contrast to the technical arts. And so Liber um, here being connected to the word book, also connected to the word for free, um, free person. I guess I would say free man mostly. No, no, free person. Lots and lots of nuns uh, were doing a lot of learning in the Middle Ages as well, as were aristocratic women. Um, But the idea of, of this particular model, taking educational excellence, taking that in depth approach to learning, and then continuity, creating continuity to the world beyond the boundary of the liberal arts college. I think. that in the 19th century, when our college was founded, I think it was perhaps designed to be a place very far away from anywhere else. One of the great thrills of liberal arts colleges today, and I would say of Grinnell, is its permeability to the world and its permeability out into the world as well. And you again, you heard that marvelous example from Dean Marzoff of how that could possibly work. And so when we think about the shared labor of the liberal arts, we really do think about the, the kind of commitment that it takes to learn in community. And it does sustain me. And I'll tell you why. There's one word I haven't said yet. It sustains me, you know, no matter how long the hours are, no matter, um, and, and when I was a faculty member, you know, no matter, no matter how much grading there was to do, the thing that sustains you when you look at it through this lens of loving labor is curiosity. Curiosity, this great, wonderful um, human emotion that we have, and thank goodness that we share with many other species on the planet. Um, but curiosity, this, this desire, what is curiosity, right? This desire to know. Um, this drive to understand. And I will tell you, teaching art history all those years, and as I think about you know, Dean Marsloff and all the other faculty members that I so deeply ab- admire at this institution, is this idea that no matter how much you know, there's more to learn. No matter how much you know, you're bringing it into the classroom, and then this marvelous moment where the knowledge has been created, where the knowledge is shared, and then it's gonna produce more knowledge. And you're curious to know what that is. That, I think, is the powerful, powerful drive of this loving labor of the liberal arts. And I think it helps, I hope that it helps you understand Grinnell College a little bit better. I hope that it helps us understand ourselves a little better, of course, as we engage in strategic planning, because we wanna think about how to sustain that labor, how to sustain our sense of place, how to plan into research and scholarship and the curriculum and interdisciplinarity, Um, how to always be 
thinking of the possible futures of our pedagogy. And so this is why it's been wonderful to, to be at this conceptual level. Um, but you can expect, of course, in the next coming years, that there will be initiatives dedicated to educational excellence and continuity. Um, and I really prize what Dean Marsloff talked about in terms of access to this experience. That in and of itself um, is a powerful strategic endeavor. And so with that, dear listener, I am left bidding you a wonderful Wednesday evening. And until next time, take care. <laughs>